your your taxes or your the rates that you pay to your water, sewer, gas, utility, electric utility, you know, chunk of that goes towards replacement of their infrastructure. And they're not getting the best bang for the buck sometimes. And I think the if the ratepayers really knew that, they would probably clamor for more cost effective construction. Greetings, this is Peter Dyke, your host for the Poly Podcast, and with us tonight, in case you couldn't tell whose voice that was, is Collins Orton. Collins is the dean of pipe bursting in the United States. He's recently retired, and he's been very gracious with his time over the years and talking to our, uh, our industry, uh, and we're lucky to get him here on the Poly Podcast. This conversation with Collins goes in a lot of different directions, from Apple Computer's use of polyethylene pipe to early days of pipe bursting and trenching with primitive pipe bursting equipment. Collins brings it full circle by talking about what's going to happen in the future, and and we are just so pleased that he took the time to sit down with us. Let's get to the Poly Podcast. Anyway, Collins Orton, welcome to the PE Alliance Podcast. We're delighted to to see you here, and you know we've had some success with this podcast program because of guys like you, so thanks for agreeing to come on. Where are you coming to us today from, Collins? I'm sitting here in my office in Redwood City, California. It's near, just south of San Francisco in Silicon Valley. Awesome. And and you have a, um, you don't have a Mac computer though, do you? No, but I know lots of people who work there. <laughs> my, have you my, been to the new Apple spaceship? I actually did a bunch of work on that place when they were building it. I don't need to go there. So is it true, like we get to talk about all the time, that Apple put in a lot of polyethylene pipe sub, subgrade um, as the spaceship was being built? Is that true? That's probably quite true. There was a lot of stuff went in the ground out there. We actually got involved with moving big, enormous trees that were on that site originally. They moved trees. One of them, I remember, weighed 300,000 pounds. And we uh, used some boring tools and punched steel pipe under it, made a raft, lifted these things out of the ground, moved them to a place where they stored them for a couple of years. And then they moved them back to another location and replanted them. So when you see those aerial shots of the uh, space station, you can, uh, when you see those big trees, those are probably not there when they were building that place. So I listened to Steve Jobs' presentation to the city council um, when he was presenting this to get approval to build it. And the big deal was he, they took an old Hewlett Packard plant, which I'm sure you were very familiar with, and said, hey, you know, they're out of business or we bought their facility and, and guess what? We're going to create our new corporate headquarters. And, uh, you know, he pretty much got the right whatever he wanted to do um, because of the tremendous benefit that that facility brings to the neighborhood, certainly. But they were, you know, asking a lot of good questions and his, you know, I used to be in that business and, you know, we used to pride ourselves in our good presentations. I mean, he didn't really have that sophisticated presentation, Collins. He just basically went there and talked and told, and told them his vision for the facility um, without a lot of fanfare. 
It was pretty interesting. It must have been pretty early in the process, but... Uh, yeah, it would have been. That took a long time for that place to, uh, you know, for all the... To make it happen. It's... Uh, and then most of the people aren't even there now. <laughs> They're working remotely. <laughs> right. Think about that. So, Collins, you and I met many years ago. Um, you were... To, I was told to me when I got into this 10 years ago that you were the guy to talk to because you knew more about pipe bursting than anybody else in the U.S. And you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, right. And then I got to know you and I realized, oh, my gosh, everything I've heard about this guy is true. Tell us about your early years in the business, when that was and what pipe bursting looked like back then. Okay, that, that's an excellent, very good question because we've evolved so far. Uh, I'm trying to re even remember when I got into this. I've been at it, been in around the pipe bursting thing for about 30 years now. When we were first getting started, the, uh, the tools were quite different than what you see today. Principles were the same. Basically, pulling a a conical shaped device through the old pipe, destroying it simultaneously towing in the new replacement pipe. But the tooling that was out there then was rather anemic, generally, in other words, underpowered, materials were not as good, cables were too small, broke frequently, or, you know, other mechanisms that didn't work right. There was a particular device that we used uh, and I'm not going to use a trade name because it's kind of gone, but it was basically a, an expanding and contracting mechanical device that was hydraulically powered. And it was a great idea. Uh, it was developed in England. And the company I was with at the time, we had bought the rights to it. So we had to Americanize it. And we found the thing to be a little too fragile generally. And with it opening and closing, uh, sand would get in into the mechanism. And after a while, you couldn't close it anymore. So it was kind of a good idea that would work if you were in just solid clay. But if there was any kind of sand backfill around the existing pipe, that was a problem. So that, that system kind of largely disappeared because it wasn't competitive, it wasn't uh, productive. The uh, About the same time that that expanding and contracting type uh, device was developed, the pneumatic pipe bursting systems were just beginning to evolve. Uh, and again, the hammers that were used were generally a little bit on the, on the weak side, uh, smaller, and so forth. And we learned quite quickly that uh, getting uh, the proper size tool, getting reliable air supply, big enough arrows is uh, a lot of the mechanisms to make these things work, big enough air compressors and so forth. Then the hammer started to really uh, take over a great deal of the, uh, of the business. Did those hammers come from the UK as well? Uh, those, uh, the original hammers, most of them were coming out of Germany at that time, uh, the, through TT Technologies. And uh, they had developed those hammers mostly for pipe ramming originally, and then we adapted them 
to uh, use for pipe bursting and as well as for boring and some other things. But, uh, you know, the, the big share of the work became pipe bursting and the hammers had to last. They had to, they had to run for long periods of time uh, in terrible conditions down in the ground in mud and water and everything else that you're going to run into. And, you know, reliability became better and better. But it wasn't just the equipment uh, that was improving. The skill of the contractors utilizing the equipment really started to, to have a big upswing. The uh, manufacturers got better. There's also, there was still quite a bit of uh, homemade equipment being utilized at that time. Uh, I've seen some rather strange looking pieces of gear that some of it worked really well. Some of it was really dangerous, uh, you know, and so forth. But uh, so the contractors became much more skilled and a lot more experience. And, and coming along lastly, on, uh, unfortunately in a way, are the engineers, the utilities themselves, uh, consulting engineers, people with designing projects. Uh, and I'd say, uh, I was, and I was thinking about this yesterday, is uh, th those guys, in a lot of cases, and I say guys, all the folks in that area, a lot of them have come a long way, but there's still an awful lot of uh, folks out there that are way, way behind the curve. This is a subject that's uh, being taught a little bit in a few universities. I've done some of that teaching, but uh, probably not enough information out there yet. Uh, sometimes the engineers, uh, those folks that need to kind of, you know, really pitch these projects to the owners are not doing the kind of job that I think that they ought to be doing. They, they'll... They'll do whatever the owner wants. Uh, they'll, they're not really uh, very passionate about uh, making trenchless technology work for for the owner, for the ratepayers. Uh, I, I just had a call last week from a gentleman who's a smart guy, and he asked me, hey, I got 2,000 feet of, he didn't even really know what size the pipe was. It was 24 inch. He's the vice president of an engineering firm. And that's about all the information he gave me. And I had to pry a little bit more out of him. And in the end, he says, it's all I got. <laughs> and you can, you know, at that point, they're talking with an owner. They're uh, probably trying to decide whether to pipe burst or to dig it up. Well, what, what do you think they would want to do, Collins? Well, there wasn't enough information provided. That's, that's the bottom line. You know, it's hard enough to get, well, how many feet is it? You know, is it two feet? Is it two million feet? You know? Yeah, but if, if you're an engineer, if you run an engineering firm, you're the guy in charge. Do you want to open cut it or do you want to pipe burst it? You know, so much of the time I, I see these guys are, they're not really leading the charge. It's more, you know, the owner is going to say, well, we want to do this or we want to do that. The engineers are just kind of, um, you know, they're they're kind of weak on this, uh, to be honest. This is a safe, as Drew likes to say, this is a safe space, this Poly podcast. Um, but 
my point about if you're the engineering firm president, Collins, where do you get more fee? Other things being equal. Yeah, they're certainly looking at that. Yep. They are looking for fees. Fee. Fee. Fees are a function of construction cost. Yeah, see, and that's that's the problem. Or that's not the problem. That's a problem. Because that's not serving the ratepayers. You know, and I, I'm not trying to you know, this is not a not for this isn't a not for profit business. Uh, but you know, here we are, we're all in a you know your your taxes or your the rates that you pay to your water, sewer, gas, utility, electric utility, you know, chunk of that goes towards replacement of their infrastructure. And they're not getting the best bang for the buck sometimes. And I think the if the ratepayers really knew that, they would probably clamor for more cost-effective construction. Yeah. So if fees of a function of production of construction cost, and you can do a, a $1.1 million open cut job or a $600,000 pipe bursting job, what are you going to do? There's, I call it the politics of pipe. So there, there is a lot of that out there. There's a, you know, there's polyethylene is, is a great pipe material. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, from my personal experience, there are certain applications where it's not the right pipe, but, uh, those are few and far between. You know, sometimes you have certain types of pressures or you may have a temperature situation. It could be any number of things. But, uh, you know, there's not, there isn't one perfect pipe that's going to do everything out there. I, I know that's not exactly what you're probably looking to hear, but, uh, you know, but it can work in 90% of the applications. You know, just like every other pipe material that might be out there, you know, they're going to they're going to work in a broad range. Yeah. And you've devoted your last 30 years of your career to those methods. And, you know, you, Collins, have been very vocal about strategies and why to use it and the benefits it brings. And, um, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, so, Peter, why is it taking so long to get the municipal water market to use your product? And. You know, in the gas industry, and Collins, you've done a lot of pipe bursting of gas pipe. Um, they showed up to work one day, and the regulator said, you shall use polyethylene. But in the water business, nobody is saying that, are they? Well, you can end up with a bit huge sinkhole, and, and in some cases, a, a, a pretty good uh, sinkhole can cause a tremendous amount of destruction. Hey, Drew, let's take a moment here to recognize Dustin Cote with Strongbridge International uh, because, Drew, they're our sponsor today. Welcome, Dustin Cote. Peter, we're excited to be here. Well, your support of the podcast program, uh, the Poly Podcast, Dustin, is, is unbelievable. We're so thankful. And this session, you know, Dustin, we're learning about uh, French lists, specifically pipe bursting from a legend out there. Collins Orton, I mean, what a great guy to listen to. Uh, but interestingly, Electrofusion and the products that you sell to distributors, Dustin, play perfectly into this installation method. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, Strongbridge International, our company, we have worked on um, 
many projects with distributors um, and engineers where pipe bursting or um, any kind of directional drilling has been done. You know, one of the main products that we promote um, under our umbrella is the Tega brand of electrofusion fittings. Tega, uh, the Tega brand is well known throughout the world. Um, it's been around for over 30 years. Um, it's a very highly engineered product. It's a very innovative company. Um, we can do many things with our customers that are not off the shelf, but are bespoke um, custom produced items for specific applications. Um, and really electrofusion and pipe bursting directional drilling really go hand in hand. Um, eventually you'll have to tie two pipe ends together and you'll use a coupler to do that an electrofusion coupler. Um, if you're doing, for instance, re relining a, a municipal um, water pipeline system, you're going to have to do lateral lines to connect services to homes and businesses. That's where electrofusion saddles are really um, a huge ray of light and, and just make the job so much easier for the contractor and installer to give a really reliable um, connection that's easy to put in, only takes one person and doesn't require a lot of space. So really electrofusion for tie-ins, on pipe bursting projects or directional drill projects um, where you're tying two pipe ends together or doing lateral lines off of an existing main line, um, electrofusion saddles, they really shine there. And, and we're really proud to have the largest size range and pressure class range of electrofusion fittings available globally. And we stock those all in our, our US facilities and ship all over North America. So, we were, um, back when we traveled, Dustin, Drew and I were down in Texas and we witnessed a pipe bursting installation. And these guys were throwing on these electrofusion saddles and the temporary water service like it was nobody's business. Uh, and they had that neighborhood, you know, they had the water turned off. And before that, they did all these saddles on a four inch line so that everybody had water so that they could take their time to put, the, put that pipe burst line in. It was really, really impressive. So I can see how these electrofusion saddles are indeed a time saver. Very much so, Peter. They really are. I mean, compared to some of the alternatives of using a T or some type of other uh, mechanical connection, um, the reliability, speed, um, and the limited amount of space that you need to be able to perform the fusion work really is where it really can save uh, a lot of time. And on these projects, time is money. Um, and, and it gets your customers back up and running sooner, which is what everybody wants. It's time to get back to Collins Orton. Dustin, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Peter. What, what are the two reasons that owners, whether that be the civil or the owner making the decisions and paying the civil's fees, what is the reason, what is the reluctance to use polyethylene, whether it's trenchless or open cut? What does your wisdom tell us? Okay, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons, just number one, and you'll hear this particularly at the uh, operation and maintenance level, which has, carries a lot of sway with, uh, with most water and sewer utilities. The folks in the field are used to working with they're either you know ductile iron or PVC. They're used to working with it. They have a warehouse full of fittings 
specifically for those types of pipe. Everybody knows and understands how to do it. A second, uh, secondarily, there is a uh, uh, an attitude that oh, polyethylene pipe, we'd have to buy new equipment. Oh, we have to make a repair. We can't work on that with our own crews. We have to bring somebody in. It's specialized. So those are those are a couple of the uh, reasons, you know, that, and it's driven from the bottom up in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, the O&M folks, they, they have their ways of doing things that have evolved for over many decades. I've seen some, particularly water utilities, they're, they're doing things today the same way that they've been doing it for 80 years in a lot of cases. You don't see them pouring lead anymore to uh, seal joints because that's been pretty well pretty well banned but uh, you know a lot of the old methods are, are still being utilized. I, I still see people drilling and tapping holes in the sides of ductile iron pipe to attach uh, harness restraints as opposed to clamps and so forth. They literally drill and tap holes, perm use permatex or some other sealant uh, to bolt lugs to the side of pipe for harnesses, you know, to keep the pipe from, you know, a joint from coming apart or a fitting or fabrication of some sort. Well, you know, Collins, if I'm running that utility, just take East Bay Mud, for example, um, and, you know, I've got several hundred, if not 1,500 guys and gals working in maintenance, right? I'm not going to make a decision that's going to ruin their lives for the next five years. Um, even though I live in an earthquake-prone area and polyethylene is the seismic pipe, I mean, that, that'd be a tough decision for me to have to make. However, you know, to your earlier point, Collins, who do all these people work for? They work for the ratepayer. They do. And these large utilities are continuing to make decisions uh, using faulty premises and using antiquated methods, as you've just described. You know, when we first started doing the Alliance Collins, one of our first strategies was to go to the elected officials and make an intellectual argument about how great our product was. And what we found was that in every case, that elected official, the first phone call he or she made was to his or her public works director. And they asked that person, well, what do you think about this HDPE stuff? Oh, we'd have to train everybody. We have to buy this new equipment. So in support of exactly what you just said, I mean, I've, we've been hearing that for years. So the utilities that are, that are using it, Collins, tend to be the, the small and medium-sized utilities that are a little bit more nimble, who are willing to take that intellectual argument and say, Gosh, those guys are making some sense. We really ought to try a pilot project. What role have you seen that pilot projects have played? Have you worked on a bunch of those when you installed HDPE and pipe bursting? How did, how did those play out? So in some cases, they play out very well because they, they get to try, try this particular, not just the methodology, but the pipe product itself. They begin to see the advantage um, and that will help them to move forward but then there are also some situations where 
they'll say they'll try out pipe bursting, but in a lot of cases, what they'll do is it'll be the nastiest, worst possible project in the world. And so their measure of how the technology itself worked or how the pipe itself reacted uh, gets, you know, they, they put it in a situation to fail. And I don't think it, that they plan to do it that way necessarily, but that's what happens. They'll, they'll Or they'll come back and they'll say, well, yeah, that worked fine. Uh, we'll, we'll use that over here whenever we have these, you know, hard to do projects. Yeah, that, that pipe will be real good for that. But they, they won't use it for for every day. It's, I, I still find that kind of confusing. But it's old ways die hard, that's for sure. What What does a typical job site sequencing look like and how much time benefits the neighborhood? So people got to live through this construction cycle. So pipe bursting compared to open cut, educate us about that and what sequencing looks like in a pipe bursting job. I'm going to go to, I'm going to use the example I'm going to use here for you is uh, been uh, pretty typical over in the, particularly in the city of Berkeley. Um, and I'm going to use that for a reason because they were actually one of the early adopters of using PE pipe. And this is primarily in wastewater uh, collection system. But uh, the sequencing and, and so forth would be relatively the same. The um, city decided to try pipe bursting at the uh, request of a local contractor. And the first couple of jobs, and this is going back about 30 years ago, first couple of projects looked pretty terrible. It was World War III. Uh, people were out of, uh, had no sewer service for a couple of days. You know, nobody kind of understood how, all the uh, ramifications. Contractors got smart, figured out how to pipe burst and at least get temporary service back on the same day. Projects that were being bid by the city went from being bid as open cut to now they were bidding the projects as contractor option, open cut or pipe bursting. As time evolved, those projects became pipe bursting. Uh, so today, most of their projects, you know, collection system, you know, and by extrapolation, water main, you know, your water distribution network would go pretty much the same way. They're saving money. They, they recognize that they're getting more bang for their buck. And the contractor uh, pool of contractors has become skilled and large. There's enough contractors doing this work that it's very competitive. They're saving money. And, you know, they're, they're probably saving in the anywhere from probably ranges between 20 and 40 percent over uh, open cut costs. And the way things are going today, open cut costs are continuing to go up from uh, I just had a conversation with a contractor the other day about that. So out on the, in the neighborhood, I, I know you're going to want to know, well, what's it look like to the uh, average citizen? So in Berkeley, which is a very densely populated area, by the way, you know, house lots are no more than 50 feet wide and everybody's got cars, uh, you know, so forth. The uh, contractor comes out on site. They've, They've had the, uh, where their pit locations are, they've been USAID, in other words, underground service alert. Uh, they pothole for conflicting utilities. 
before much of anything else gets started. They're CCTVing the existing pipe, which in a water distribution system you're probably not going to do. But for sewers, it's pretty critical to know where all the connections are and so forth. Uh, and then the uh, contractor is going to come out. You know, pipe will get delivered. They'll start excavating for their entrance and exit pits, uh, service connection pits. Uh, smaller equipment is on the site. Instead of large excavators, you're going to see smaller equipment. And the, you know, the excavation uh, equipment companies have come up with the much more clever machines that work in tight, compact areas that can dig deep, that are they're quite powerful. But uh, they've learned, also, as we have, how to work in a compact area. Pipe will be fused. Most of the time, a pipe may not get fused right where it's going to get installed. It may be fused at one location and then uh, various strings of pipe are pulled down the street to the actual installation location. So on the day of a job, uh, an actual install from say a, a, a valve box or a, a valve cluster at an intersection to another valve cluster or manhole to manhole in a sewer, so let's say it's 300 to 500 feet of pipe, that's gonna the pipe's gonna be welded up the day before, a couple of days before. It's gonna be pulled over to that site. Pipe bursting head will be attached. It may already be in there. Uh, the uh, winch cable get threaded through the pipe. It's been taken out of service for the day. The new pipe is installed in some, you know a matter of hours, usually by early afternoon. Uh, they're reconnecting, at least temporarily, all the various services, tying back into uh, the manholes, at least temporarily, and that pipe goes back into service that day. Uh, water systems. A little bit different, there's a couple of different philosophies. The uh, uh, pre-chlorination, in other words, treating the uh, new pipe ahead of time. The pipe's been welded, you can test it, you can chlorinate it, you can pull it in today, you can get services back on today. Uh, in some areas, that may not always work out and they may have other requirements for uh, fire water as an example uh, and they may need to have a, a temporary high line in place but there are companies that are very very good at that uh, some of the companies that did cement mortar lining of old water mains for many years have huge inventories of uh, pipe that can be laid in gutters and all kinds of fittings and so forth with jump jumpers that they can put into the meter boxes they they keep the uh, water customers in water throughout the uh, the whole construction period, whether it's a short short time like pipe bursting would be, or for large projects that may take a great deal of time. So that's not unusual to see that. And it just depends on the demands of the uh, the neighborhood uh, and so and so forth. You know, if you're in a commercial area, it's going to be different than uh, residential. Let's go back to Berkeley for a second. Let's take your valve box to valve box 300 foot example. Uh, pipes fused up on Tuesday. On Wednesday, they do it in the morning. They reconnect the services in the afternoon. So that 300 foot run took three business days. Is that correct? Um, so what do they do on Thursday and Friday? They start the next one. Yeah, they're usually digging. You know, as uh, most contractors are kind of kind of think in terms of 
Uh, I'm working on three sites at one time. One site I'm getting ready. One site I'm doing the actual pipe installation work. And the third site I'm cleaning up, paving, you know, backfilling, repaving, you know, some of those things, maybe more than one day per, you know, but you can see kind of the different segments that you have to think of. And in some cases, some projects which just leapfrog right along down a, uh, a, a set path, you may also have projects that may be scattered all over town or in hilly areas like we have an awful lot of uh, pretty steep hillside applications uh, out here. You may spend a little bit more time getting things organized and so forth. The pipe goes in the same amount of time. The reconnects may take a little bit more time, but it's uh, not really a, a contiguous situation in a lot of cases. Hey Drew, just a quick tech minute here to talk about PPI's BORAID. You know, the folks at the Plastics Pipe Institute developed BORAID to assist civil engineers in designing uh, horizontal directional drills using HDPE. You know, Drew, HDPE owns the HDD market, and this software tool owns the design side of HDD. And guess what? It's free to use. It can be found at ppiboraid.com. That's P-P-I-B-O-R-E-A-I-D.com. And, you know, Drew, it does things like help you figure out entry and exit angles. It helps you figure out how much stress you're going to put on that pipe to see if the polyethylene indeed can take it. So are you going to use a DR11 or a DR17? Or can you get away with a DR21 because the stresses really aren't as great as you thought they might have been? It also can help, help you with things like how much drilling fluid. Should I use ballast? All these considerations with HDD, Borade helps you figure it out and it's free to use. And one final thing is all this data is exportable into AutoCAD. So if you're in the industry and you're talking to engineers about HDPE and HDD projects, you need to know about Borade. So get to know it. All right, Drew, back to the podcast. So you told us a little bit about what it was like in the early days using some dinosaur-like equipment that really wasn't up to the task. And as the equipment grew, the contractor's experience grew. And in certain markets, uh, the contractors, um, you know, the, the amount of contractors able to bid work. So owners got good tight bids, grew and grew. Where do you see this industry headed now? Um, since it's now, it's you know, now that polyethylene has a 10%, greater than 10% share, you know, a lot of things happen. More people are doing polyethylene. There are more people in the business. Where do you see, at least from the equipment side, where do you see that heading? I think the equipment is pretty well set today. There's some little nuances, little things, but basically, you know, we have two types of uh, systems that are out there. You have the dynamic uh pneumatic hammer type uh, systems, they really haven't changed very much. Uh, same thing with the static pipe bursting systems. It's uh, more of a brute force methodology. Again, the equipment has not really changed very much here in the last five to 10 years. 
what we are seeing is more and more uh, cities utilizing the technology. So you're getting more and more contractors uh, becoming vested in the technology. That means they're purchasing equipment, they're using it, or they're renting it. So there's more and more of this stuff out there. So that means there's more and more experienced people, not only to operate the equipment, but to design projects, to be project managers. Uh, people in cities, they don't all stay at that same city forever. You'll see somebody might be in the engineering department at one town, and they may leave for whatever, and they pick up a new job at uh, a neighboring city. And they bring a lot of their experience with them just like any of us would do. And so that's that's one of the ways, uh, kind of grassroots type of uh, expansion, I, I think is what you'd call that. Uh, so we do see that going on. So that that's, that's how I see kind of the expansion of the industry working. You know, the, the, the pipe manufacturers are out there pushing the Alliance, uh, you know, doing doing what the Alliance does and Plastic Pipe Institute, the uh, uh, specialty equipment folks are uh, generally some of the better people to talk to about, well, how do I, you know, how do, how do we actually use this pipe? You know, how do we connect to it? How do we pull this in? You know, we're, we're okay. We understand the dynamics of the pipe itself, but, but how do we actually make this work? How do we pull that in? Um, I've spent an awful lot of years making presentations to engineering departments on how to take advantage of the, uh, the pipe itself, as well as the, uh, the various techniques. All right, so we've got more contractors that know, we've got more people willing to use it, we've got more people experimenting with it, and we've got, you know, we've achieved stasis in the equipment how about um, the uh, piercing tools? Um, you know, what a fantastic way to get across the street and pull some polyethylene. Do you see a reluctance to use that, or is that like kind of a first step into pipe bursting? Guys will use one of those, ha those hammers. Yeah, the piercing tools have been around much longer than uh, pipe bursting. And like the pipe bursting equipment, the piercing tools have become much better over the years. But also, again, there's more and more people using them. An awful lot of it, I think, was driven by the gas, gases, uh, gas services, water services, uh, electric, cable, telecom. A uh, lot of use of those tools in the uh, power communications industry. And these fellows that do the work, they move to different companies. Uh, bring those skills and <clears throat> I remember training a guy one day who uh, he was from Australia contractor says here show this gentleman how to use this equipment and uh, I pull a tool out of the back of my truck and the guy looks at it and says oh I know that tool I've used those in Australia so you know they're 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 known around the world so it, it's a great uh, it's a great place to start an awful lot of our knowledge in pipe bursting came from using the uh, piercing tools originally. Well, Collins Orton, thank you for another great conversation and the education you bring to our conversations uh, today and over the years. Uh, 
my best to you, and uh, hopefully um, I'll see you out there with an epic pass uh, this winter. How about that? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. All yeah. right. We'll, we'll see you all in the next uh, Poly Podcast. Thank you, Colin Zorton.